This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I've been talking to you lately about dailygiving.org. Dailygiving.org is a transformational platform that allows you to leverage your charitable giving for only $1 a day. You can become part of over 7,000 other people giving to incredible causes on a daily basis. You don't have to go do any of the work. Just give your dollar a day. It's automated. Daily giving takes care of the research, sourcing the charities, vetting them, making sure everything's on the up and up, and that you are getting the highest impact for your dollars. You will also have the opportunity to join together with so many other Jews, all kinds of Jews all over the world. What a cool concept and what an amazing opportunity for only $1 a day. Go to dailygiving.org. Meanwhile, so excited to introduce Rabbi Steven Berg today. Steve Berg has held some top posts at major organizations in the Jewish world, including NCSY, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and now Asia Torah as its international CEO. Asia is an incredible organization. There's a lot that's known about it and probably a lot that's not known or misunderstood by many people out there. And so we had a really frank and interesting conversation about Jewish leadership and his personal journey the stewardship of many of these unique organizations and institutions. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or now follow wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, all podcast platforms. Emails, comments, questions, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And just one note, I want to acknowledge, because it's important, when we recorded this episode, it was a couple of months ago, normally have a nice lead time between recording and release, as you can probably tell from the context of some of the episodes. But in the intervening period, Rabbi Melvin Berg, of blessed memory, Rabbi Stephen Berg's father, passed away. I saw the news about it, and actually I was thinking about releasing this episode a little earlier, decided to wait until some time had passed between the passing of Rabbi Berg Sr. and when we put this episode out. But now that a little bit of time has gone by, I do want to dedicate this episode in memory of Rabbi Melvin Berg, Zichrona Lavracha. May his memory be for a blessing, and may all of his son's great efforts on behalf of the Jewish people serve as a fitting tribute to his everlasting legacy. And so now, to our conversation with Aisha Torah International CEO, Rabbi Stephen Berg. We are here with Rabbi Stephen Berg, the Chief Executive Officer, the CEO of Aisha Torah International, an amazing organization, and we're going to learn a lot about it today. But how are you, Rabbi Steve? I'm good. Good. It's an absolute pleasure to, uh, to be here with you. Awesome to have you. I've known you kind of on and off for many years, and I was in NCSY very involved many years ago in the, in the 90s when mm. you were start getting your start as a young leader there. I've kind of watched your career from afar, but I'm excited to hear all the details about it. But meanwhile, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Where did it all start for you? I grew up in Brooklyn, born in the Bronx, grew up in Brooklyn. Fairly boring uh, kind of start. I'm a Yankees fan, though. That part was good. Went to high school, then went to Israel for two years studying. And uh, in Israel, someone had come and spoke to us about NCPSY, this organization I hadn't really known much about or been a part of. Came back to go to Yeshiva University, where I, I did my uh, undergraduate and graduate work there, and started volunteering for NCSY and spent another 22 years in the organization. Got my master's in medieval Jewish history, my rabbinical degree at University, and then got married and kind of moved to Detroit to start full-time there, and then on and on from there. So you said you were growing up in Brooklyn, which... What was it like at the time you were growing up there? Was it kind of like a, uh, a more modern Orthodox family? That you way, were in? way different than it is today. <laughs> different than it is today. I still remember a father's name was like one pizza store. That was like an awesome big deal on Avenue M. 
a lot of the kids I played with when I was younger were Irish kids, Italian kids. It was a very mixed neighborhood. And it was kind of nice in a lot of ways. Got to know a lot of different people. My father is actually the rabbi of a shul in Brooklyn, modern Orthodox shul in Brooklyn for 45 years. He's actually retiring this December after spending 45 years there. So, Which synagogue is that? Ocean Avenue Jewish Center, Priest Hyam. It's on Ocean between U and V. It's the second oldest shul in Brooklyn. It's kind of big building. And so I kind of grew up being the rabbi's son in the rabbinate. So I, I saw it, you know, early on. What was that experience? Was it something you enjoyed or resented as many rabbinic children do? Yeah, I think as I get older, I, I really, there were amazing things that came out of that. When I was younger, I don't think I fully got it. My father's approach to the rabbinate was very much, he loved young people and getting them to work. I used to joke that in the shul, it was just thinking as child labor laws because he would always have us working, you know, building the sukkah and changing over the, the sukkah on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And he was very much a hands-on person. We would get there early to set up, you know, sheet shell shudas, you know, in that in the shul. And it was interesting. He, he was a rabbi. Dominic, let's say, would start at 6.30. He would get there at 6. And he'd be there early to talk to a lot of the men that were there. And I remember the first time I kind of grew up, I went out in the world and I saw like rabbis that were showing up either like when shul started or a little bit late. It always assumed that the rabbi's job was to get the early shoes with the folks that were there for it. So there were a lot of benefits. Well, did you ever consider the rabbinate or the pulpit rather as a, a stream within the rabbinate? Yeah, they, not really. I mean, I've, I've had one or two schools talk to me about it over the years. For 30 seconds, I thought about it, but I've kind of gravitated aside from what I do to a lot of the business end of organizational life. And so I respect tremendously the role that I think pulpit rabbis play or educators play, all those pieces. But my, what I've done is been a lot more broad. Maybe it's lack of attention, <laughs> ability to focus and stuff like that. I'm always working on a lot of different things, but it just never seemed like the thing that, that, that I would wind up in. But I have only the most utmost respect for people that park themselves in shul as rabbanim and from cradle to grave are taking care of families. I think it's terrific. Did you have any early role models in terms of that business side of, you know, we call kalal work or, you know, working for the Jewish people more broadly? There is the great famous activists like Rabbi Moshe Sherer and people like that people speak about. Was there anyone in your life early on that was kind of a model of that, that you could be a that's, rabbi in that way? That's such a good question. That's such a good question. I almost tripped into this part. Like, I don't even think I knew I was gravitating there as much as I was. My role models, there are a lot of rabbis that I think a tremendous amount of, but a lot of my role models were business people, were lay leaders, balabatim, people like in other areas that would kind of do business. And I realized that like I gravitated, like I had that like business mind. I felt tremendous pressure from Kaddish Baruch Hu, you know, from the Almighty to, to get certain things done. So I tried to synthesize. So for me, I look back in my life at certain role models that I saw along the way, and a lot of them have been like Balbatim. Even today, my biggest mentors and my friends, my people are my donors and, and the people that I learn from every day. Amazing. So you're this young man, you have this father's a rabbi, pulpit rabbi, you're living in Flatbush, which at the time is more of a modern Orthodox enclave, which is uh, really anachronistic. <laughs> at this point, kind of sure. hard to imagine. And now it's either, you know, ultra-Orthodox, we call Haredi, or... Hasidic or Syrian? <laughs> yeah, where, where we live now, it's very much Sardic. Yeah. Okay, so you're still in, you're still in Brooklyn? Uh, my, my parents are still there. Oh, your so. parents, yeah. Oh, so where the... they said Avenue V over there in Ocean yeah. Avenue, that's very Syrian, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, you lived in that kind of the changing neighborhood and eventually went off to Israel, I guess. The, did you have that sort of awakening experience in Israel that many young modern Orthodox men have when they might not have been as dedicated to their Jewish studies in high school or were you always more serious because of your familial relationship? Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I was never serious. I would make the case that even now I'm not particularly serious. No, I was, I had a great time in high school, really enjoyed it. I don't think it... Which, did you go to Flatbush High School? I went to MTA. MTA, okay. Yeah, and yeah, and I had a great time in high school, great friends, great time. I was not particularly serious. I went to Israel to a place called Mavisarit at the time it was Gilo. I went there as well, by the way. Oh, okay, great. But although it was, you were there when it's still Mavasar, you were Shalayim, right? Shari Shalayim, yeah. Was, Shari Shalayim, yeah. And then it moved and they changed the name to Sharm and Maseret. So I was there the first few years, it was open. It got me much, much more serious about my relationship with God and my practice of religion and all those pieces. And it really, you know, I walked out knowing I wanted to do something meaningful in my life and kind of put me on that course when a person came to speak about NCSY and 
you know, and then I went to YU and I was 19. I had a lot of friends from Detroit and Columbus, that whole area. Uh, I just kind of jumped into it. I walked into my first job at Tone and just said like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Nine years later, I became regional director. Wow. So were you in Israel during the first Gulf War? Absolutely. Yeah. Doing some mental math there. I mm-hmm. thought that might be what it was. So that was uh, Rabbi Burzon was just starting out with the new yeshiva. And so you were there during the actual war itself. Did you? Mm-hmm. 89 to 91. That was the years in Israel. Did, was there a thought of you going, I know a lot of people went back, went back home and things like that. I had no thought of it. In fact, my father came my seventeenth to visit me during the Gulf War. Even today, I never really get it. I remember during the Gulf War, it was like, uh, there was like a bus pulling out from like one of the hotels right before the war started of Jews. Like, you know, like, ah, we're with you. We're in support. See you later, suckers. You know, that impression <laughs> I got. I feel very strongly that Israel, God didn't bring us back after 2000 years to Israel to decimate us. I always tell people that I'm not going to tell you Israel's the safest place, but I can tell you when Jews have the guns and the nukes, we generally do a lot better. Uh, in his, <laughs> there was never any question. Better to be on that side. Do you remember anything about that time? Like, were you set, wearing gas masks and hiding in, uh, in the sure, bomb yeah, shelters? Sure, yeah, I had gas masks. You heard a siren, you had to run into a room, and that was obviously before they had all these systems and knockdown missiles and stuff. It was tough. That was then. And they passed, and, and now Saddam Hussein has been dead for a long time, and uh, the Jewish state is strong. Jewish nation is strong. So that's our history. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were getting involved in NCSY and maybe give for those not familiar with NCSY, give the listeners a little bit of a primer on what it is. That's where we actually first met. I'll remind you about that in a minute, but give us a little kind of overview. Sure. The NCSY was basically the youth group of the Orthodox world, you know, whereas Nifty was for reform, he was always for conservative. The Orthodox world had NCSY. It was started in the kind of late 50s, early 60s at a time where Jewish kids were not necessarily going to day school. There were a lot of them in public school. And it was decided that the Orthodox Union said we really need a youth group. And it was created then. I was, you know, very blessed to spend 22 years there working with great kids. It's 14 to 17 for the most part. And it's uh, day school kids and it's public school kids. They mix both. And just really goal is to, to help young Jews become passionate about their Judaism, connect them to the Almighty. Now, why Detroit? Why did you get involved? Because you're from New York. And you ended up in the Midwest. It's totally right. So I actually went to Moshevah as a kid for many years. And because I was in Moshevah, I had a lot of friends from Detroit. Like I had been to Detroit when I was a senior in high school visiting my friends. I knew a lot of people there. And when I got to YU, you know, I was 19 and, and uh, I bumped into a couple of people that were doing the Central East region of NCSY. So that was Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Dayton, Toledo, that whole kind of like area. And uh, I got invited to a Shabbaton in Pittsburgh, got on a van, drove like six, seven hours and walked into Shabbaton. And then I just stuck with that region for nine years. Spent a lot of time in all of those cities. Incredible time, incredible people. And it was, again, kid from Brooklyn. It was eye-opening. To- was that your first connection with NCSY when you, as an advisor? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. When I came out to Pittsburgh, I came out, it must have been 91 or into 92. Yeah, it was absolutely my first. Uh, and you had never gone as a actual high school student, a participant? No, I probably knew some people that went. I don't know, maybe I'd gone to some, I don't know, it was not significant in my life, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. it definitely was significant in my life. I was uh, super active. I was, uh, not to brag, to flex over here, and National NCS Warrior of the Year. There was a couple others with me, but I was on national board in 95, 96. And that's actually when I first met you, I think, because I was, back then, what happened was, on if you were on national board, you were like assigned a couple of regions to go to, to mm-hmm. visit. I guess sure. the mentor in those regions is if I was mentoring anyone as a 17 year old kid, I was going to have fun. But I had Long Island and Central East. I had Central East, you know, Rabbi Sally Friedman sure. and longtime and director. And then I went to a couple of Shabbatones. I went to one in Pittsburgh and Squirrel Hill. And I went to one, I believe it was in Cleveland, either Cleveland or Columbus. So I got to really know people. I remember the regional president from that time. And I remember the whole thing. There were a girl named Sarah Chop. She was the regional president at sure. the time. Anyway, so I, that's where I first met you. I'm sure it was extremely memorable for you, but I, I definitely remember you and some of the leadership that was there back then. So you were at NCSY for a bunch of years, and it sounds like at some point you elevated into, you said, a regional director role. Where was that and how did that? So I, when I spent the first nine years in Central East, the last four of those years, I got married, moved to Detroit. I was the assistant regional director there. And then around 2000, I became the regional director of West Coast NCSY, which covers San Diego up to Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, out to El Paso, Texas. And I was there for five years uh, as wow. director. So what was that shift like going from, first of all, the Midwest to the West Coast? And it from was, kind of, yeah, it was great. 
I got that job the way I've gotten most of my jobs in my career, which is no one else wanted the job. I've just found it so much easier to go to job interviews where you were the only one there. <laughs> Post had basically imploded. It just wasn't really working. And it was the type of thing where they're like, okay, can we find anyone? I'm like, I'll do it. And they're like, anyone else? True story. They literally went a year without a regional director trying to find someone. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me the job. Is that before or after they knew you you were interested? <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it, was, you know, it was clear. Yeah, so I, I liked it because I spent nine years before that. I wasn't a newbie. And I'd always been like, well, if I get my own shop, I'll do it this way, I'll do it that way. And you kind of come up with your own theories. And theories are great, but you have to put them into practice at some point to see if you're right or wrong. And I've had a long career and I've been right about a lot of stuff and there's other stuff I haven't been. But it gave me the opportunity. And the best part was the thing was a bit broken. So no one was going to hold anything against me. <laughs> to me, that I don't know why people think any other jobs. Those are the best jobs to take because you can only go up from there. And it was my first real shot at management, managing people, hiring people, strategically planning, like doing all the things that, that I now do pretty often. What were the major challenges that you were walking into? What wasn't working out there? Nothing was really working. <laughs> <laughs> office. I'll never forget that I came to the office. I'm like, can you list the kids? And they're like, we have a database, but it's password protected. We don't know who set the password. And I'm like, well, how do we get the password? Again, this is 2000. This is kind of the internet is just kind of coming out. And they're like, oh, well, this guy, we're going to give this guy the computers, expert, we pay him on it. He's okay. I got the first three letters, L-A-T. And then someone in the office goes, oh yeah, it's latte. And then we were able to open it and, and, and literally they had created a database spreadsheet for every single shop tone. So there's no way to put everything together. And I was basically told there are no public school kids in LA. All the public school kids are out of LA. And in LA, we just do yeshiva kids. And it's just a lot of things like that. And also, I think like in most organizations, institutions, certainly a place like NCSY, everyone's fairly opinionated and everyone really likes the way they've always done stuff. And it's hard to break people out of status quo even if things aren't working so well, usually things aren't like totally broken. They work just well enough and people like to stick to that. So it was a combination of all those things of trying to get there. Our first regional convention we did that May, we had 175 kids. And thank God, two years later, our regional convention had 425. So we were, we were able to pull a couple of levers to, to fix it. But it was a great experience. Honestly, in my entire career, those five years, probably my strongest ability to grow in probably everything I've done. From a management perspective, did you end up cleaning house and kind of bringing in all new blood that was on board with a new vision? Or were you able to massage existing personnel into a new way of doing things? What was your approach from a management perspective? Yeah, I, I don't believe in cleaning house. There are definitely people that do it and it's a approach. I don't believe in it. I think that people are good and dedicated and really want to do well and you have to give them that chance and you have to adjust. So usually any organization or thing I've taken over, I've mostly been able to retain most of the people there and I've had to one or two just didn't work there and we had to coach them out because they could do really good things in other places. And that was a situation that's about accountability and everyone's good people and their hearts are in my place, but they're not really even sure what they're supposed to be doing or accomplishing. And I'm not like, I'm like a rigid goal setter, but you got to have some kind of baseline for when you come to work. I establish people are all over the map and I just say, look, if you're not, if you're not in by 930, you got to give me a call. And one of my guys, 10 o'clock, not there. I said, you got to come in right now because he was like painting his house. And he came, he was really angry. And I said, look, I don't care that you told off the date. You got to tell me you're responsible to me. And he said, okay, I get it. And I let him go paint his house. You have to do it, not be really obnoxious about it. Then the other thing you have to do really is to appreciate them for who they are. I always tell the story. I separated the program people from the administrative people. I put them in two separate rooms. And I said, I want you to think about how you can help each other. I go into the administrative room. They're all sitting there, kind of cross-legged with a pad of paper and a pen. Someone's designated themselves in charge of making a list of how they can help all these, the guys in the other room. I go to the other room and, and there's like a food fight going on, paper, air, means, you know, <laughs> or in bedlam. And you'd have a guy, they say, okay, you've got to do everything. You've got to book the bus and you've got to do your crew. Now, like, why in the world is a guy booking a bus for even kids? Like, why wouldn't we do that? Someone else could just, probably the biggest thing I learned out there was let people do what they're good at and, and keep that focus. And so we did a lot of that. We, we kind of broke it up and pulled administrative responsibilities from a lot of the guys and put it on other people that were really good at it and let them just help create passionate Jews. Did you have any coaches or sort of management gurus to use an overused expression when you were out there? Yeah. Rabbi May, the Simon Wieslow Center, Rabbi May was a big mentor to me. We go out to lunch every once in a while. And I remember 
I didn't always wear a suit. I was working with teens. I was wearing a shirt. And one day, I used to call MMA all the time. Do lunch every two, three months. I'd run things by him. And one day after regional, it's Monday, and I'm exhausted. And May shoots me an email. He's like, oh, you want to go to lunch? I'm like, wow, he had never asked me to go to lunch. Put on my suit, the whole thing. I show up. I'm like, hey, what's up? He goes, uh, well, I heard you ran a regional. How'd it go? I'm like, it went really well. He goes, I just wanted to say thank you for half the Jewish people because people in our positions don't always get thanked. And it was like, wow, in my mind. That's amazing. It was amazing. And that's why it's so important when you're in these positions, you manage to make sure that people appreciate it because they're killing themselves. They're doing, working really hard. And you got to let them know that someone's noticed. That's an awesome story. I, I love that. I love that he called you up just to get to lunch and said, great job. It's good man. Good Where'd man. you go to lunch, by the way? <laughs> Pass. There is a... Yeah, pass. That's, that's your, is that your spot? Default location at the time. That's your spot. Everyone goes now. J- Jeff's is the hot spot these days. But yeah, Jeff's not, wasn't open at the time. Jeff's wasn't open. It's also not as fancy, but yeah, that's awesome. So at some point, obviously, it sounds like Rabbi May not only appreciated you so much that he hired you. So what was the uh, transition over from NCSY over to yeah. Simon Wiesenthal Center? I had gone on from LA to New York. I was the uh, international director of NCSY for eight years. Oh, okay. So I missed that. I missed that chunk. There we go. Yeah, the last bunch of years, I was also the managing director of the OU and stuff. And so I had a lot of responsibility. And then after 20 years, it was time to take kind of shifts out, to pivot out and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. I've been over 22 years. I really don't know what else there is to do in the world. And I called Robin May and he'd always said to me, when you're ready, give me a call. And I gave him a call and I went over to Simon Wiesel Center to work for him which was mind-blowing in so many ways because my focus until then had been community. And the Weasel Center speaks to so many African-American, Latino, Asian-American. There's so many communities that they're involved in and lobbying city-state. There's a lot of things I did there where my brain had to kind of expand and it was just great stuff. That's awesome. I want to get there in a second, but I did skip over eight years. That's a sure. lot of time. So what was, the, what was that experience like? Obviously, you must have done a good job reforming the West Coast region because not only did it succeed, but they ended up taking you for the international role or the national role. Yeah, I appreciate the praise, but once again, no one else wanted the job. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, was like a punishment, team. like the worst the regional director. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the things where, you know, a lot of great people had tried it. And I would say that the 10 or 11 years before that, probably eight or nine people had kind of sat at the head of NCSY. It was very true. There was a lot of things that went on throughout the years that made it kind of difficult. For me, it just, I'd spent five years at West Coast. I had built it up significantly. We started programs like TCJ and JSU and certain things that had come out of LA. And, you know, here is also, how do I accomplish this to the next level? I'm very blessed that I've, I've kind of taken steps up in my career. I've never really skipped levels. So I was able to formulate my thoughts, my feelings, what I think I would do in certain circumstances, and then get to the next level and then try to employ them. And thank God things worked out pretty well. But that's... Did that's, you often find there was a huge gap between that theory and practice that you talked about? Was um, it harder to implement than you expected? It's always hard to implement. It's always hard to implement. And again, most of the things I've taken on have been difficult. I always get asked that question. The answer is God gives you a tremendous blessing in which we forget pain. You go to the dentist, it's painful, and then you forget and you go again. You're like, oh man, that's why I don't like this. And so you start from bottom up and you roll up your sleeves and you kill yourself and you're like, oh, I'm never doing this again. And then like a couple of years later, you're like, okay, you know, you're, it's a lot of work. It's some frustration at trying to do these things. But on the other hand, the exhilaration of being able to affect a lot of people. For me, I always quote Henry Ford, who may have been an anti Semite, but yeah. he knew business. And he used to say, I'd rather have 1% of 100 men's effort than 100% of my own. And I, live by that, I've been able to take really good people and enable them to do really good things. And so for that, I'd rather have 1% of 100 men's ever than just 100% myself. I can go out and do stuff, but where would I be? I'd have that kind of small conclave or whatever grouping. But really, if I could just let good people do good things, then that's how greatness is achieved. Why do you think NCSY has been so complex of a role to find somebody to manage it long term. I mean, now they've had some stability with Rabbi Greenland, but why was that? I know the OU had issues in the 90s, late 90s and so forth. But apart from what's so complicated about that enterprise? It's straightforward. What's complicated about NCSY is that it's owned by the OU. It's not its own organization. So what's complex on multi-levels is the lay leaders that you're dealing with or the youth commission or the board you're dealing with are not necessarily people who are passed around NCSY. It's people that the OU just felt that they should put there. And so that grouping and that DLA and the OU is the major funder. And there's good things to that because you have money in the bank, but there's a lot of things that you have to do things that take them into consideration. It's not necessarily what's best for the teens. That's always been a piece to it. 
OU has made strides. I think as he's wise, made strides in trying to deal with some of that stuff. But it is very complex when you're in this kind of bureaucracy where you're doing something you're so passionate about, but there's just so many other things you have to take into consideration that have nothing to do with what you're actually doing. So as I encounter this sometimes as kind of an idealist type person, mm-hmm. running up against the pragmatic, I don't call it competing agendas, the people espousing those agendas would not consider them competing, but they often end up sort of like the bureaucratic class ends up being competing agendas because of funding realities, because of other things like that. How have you navigated that? Have you found yourself often just like frustrated? Come on, guys, just get with the program. Do what's best for the kids. Do what's best for the program. It'll work out on the finance front and so forth. Or have you always understood, look, this is a part of the game. And That is one of the most delightful questions I think I've ever been asked. I'm a pretty straightforward, truthful guy. I'll tell you about my personal opinion. I grew up within the OU with NCSY and learning to play the game. I want to affect the kids and therefore I'll do what I have to do politically over here to enable that. One of the blessings I have at age, and we're not even up to there yet, but one of the blessings I have at age is I'm blessed with board and people and Rosh Hashiva and, and all the people involved who care about the organization so much. I have donors who support us to the tune of seven figures and they're way smarter than me and I'm super close with them and they'll tell me what they think. But in six years, they've never told me what to do ever. And there's a certain respect that they give me. And I certainly respect them because like I said, they're way smarter and they're just the most terrific, brilliant people. But there's a certain respect. And in essence, what I tried to build the culture at H was kind of taking into effect at consideration. I, I don't want people playing games. And we tried to create a super transparent, open culture where if we fight and argue, we had someone recently come to one of our meetings to the organization. And uh, it was myself and one, one of my guys, we were going at it. Like at the meeting, oh, we were really going at it. And then we went to dinner afterwards and literally it was like, now they're not jumping each other. That's unbelievable. We're like, no, that's just, that's how we play ball. Very brutally honest with each other, but there's tremendous respect there. And, and so the, you play the game and you play the game, but it's not really the way life is supposed to be lived. Yeah, I, it can be hard. There, there are different personality profiles in the world and some are naturally more amenable to sort of that political give and take. And some people are just, that truth quality and it's very hard for those personalities to absorb sometimes they get pushed out of organizations because they can't play that game and that can be tragic and sometimes it's the best thing that ever happened to them you know right? sometimes the best thing plan for them but yeah it goes all ways so you were uh, eight years at the national helm and then as you said that ran its course and you called rabbi bay and rabbi mm-hmm. bay r- runs wiesenthal or yeah, actually, I've actually interviewed uh, Rabbi Marvin Heyer on this podcast. He uh, oh, was an yeah. amazing okay. person a couple of years back and some incredible mm-hmm. stories. And so I imagine he was part of that process as well. What was the allure to you? It's a completely different sort of arena. And I would imagine it's probably scary to go from something where you have total, we never have total mastery, but when you have pretty significant competency in an area and then you're like, okay, I'm going to go to a completely different organizational arena, maybe similar kinds of skills that are going to be utilized. But I don't know anything about the demographic, about the mission, et cetera. And like, maybe I'll fall flat on my face. How was that transition? Oh, it's completely terrifying. (laughs) It's not pretty scary. It's completely terrifying. When you've been someplace for 22 years and your full social circle, for a lot of us in this kind of communal space, these are our friends and everything. And I kind of left at just the OUF for all the time. And my friends were like, God, it was like, not to be cynical, but I couldn't help them as much. I did before I stopped getting phone calls and into this new space, but I tell people all the time, leaving was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life. It kind of freed me up in that way. And I went to that space and it was very different and absolutely fascinating. I love, look, I feel very passionately about fighting anti-Semitism. I think it's massively important. I think there are two ways to basically support the Jewish people. One is to try and protect them physically. One is to try and protect them spiritually. And I think that, you know, that's kind of what Moshe Rabbeinu, what Moses did. On the one hand, he brought us out of Egypt to give us the Torah, which is God's wisdom. On the other hand, he also saved us from genocide where they were killing babies in Egypt. So I think that Moses saved us physically and spiritually. I think those are the two sides of the coin. So this was much more of the physical realm and it was combating bullying and certain things. And I did a lot of lobbying in Albany and New York City for grants, for training of lawn ports and things. And it just put me in space that I really enjoyed, like you were saying, just kind of stretching my brain to try and figure out pieces of that. And it definitely made me a better professional along the way. And yeah, it was a great experience. What were you supposed to be doing there, accomplishing? I was a director of East Coast. They're all based in LA. I was in New York, Washington. We had a museum on 42nd Street, 62nd and 3rd Museum of Tolerance. So I was dealing with a lot of people coming through there, schools, law enforcement, all kinds of different teachers and stuff. 
And their films did premieres, the prime ministers, for example, I did those two premieres and other things. So I was basically handing stuff on these posts for them. Great experience. What did you learn about yourself shifting from this role within Jewish outreach and the FTSY world and moving over to that broader communal type of organization and doing advocacy work and, and different kinds of tasks? What did that teach you about yourself? Excellent question. You're good. There are a lot of things I learned about myself in terms of dealing with a lot of non-Jews in different populations. Uh, it's number one is I can do it. It was similar relationship building, even though I hadn't done until then. It made me realize that, and I still do, I'm very outspoken when anti-Sesim, et cetera. Ultimately, after spending a couple of years there and when H came along, it made me realize my heart really was probably more in the kind of spiritual growth area, even though I do still do a lot of the other stuff. So it was good to spend space at a massive Jewish leadership organization to kind of think like, where am I going to park myself for next steps? And then to kind of head back. Like when I went with Dej, a lot of people were surprised. They thought I was heading in more political, different directions. But for me, it was just, after 20 years in Swai and spending time there, I was like, okay, Dej is probably the kind of place I want to wind up. So I, I think that helped me see just that piece. And, and again, it also made me fairly independent after kind of losing that whole social circle in a massive organization. My East Coast office is pretty small and we still got a lot done. So kind of, that was interesting to play out also. It's interesting. I also, as an observer generally of the Jewish world and certainly of the outreach space where I really live myself, I was also surprised, I think, when you took the H role and it did seem like you were going kind of the big, but then you were not, as they say, often the organization tired from within. Jim, to take a sports analogy, you know, Michigan has to hire a football coach, a Michigan man, Jim Harbaugh, that kind of thing. And sometimes yeah. organizations, that's important to have that cultural background. And sometimes it's actually can be, it can hamstring an organization where they don't look broader. And you were not an H person, as far as I know, right? And you, you had grown up right, in not at all. modern no. Orthodox world. NCSY, Wiesenthal, et cetera, and then Torah, which is kind of a very distinctive brand, had been founded and led for decades by one of the most charismatic figures in the Jewish world and had a very specific sort of reputation and all that. So how did that even materialize to begin with? Look, I think at this point, you could probably give the answer for me. I mean, I was the only candidate they ever watched. I wasn't getting before when I said that defies my career. I was really hired. There was a group of lay leaders, uh, of, of four or five lay leaders. Rav Noach was the sun, the moon, and the stars to Asia Torah. And he was around for, for so many years and everything was kind of tethered to him. And when he passed away, things started to float away. Asia was a small organization that became really large, eternally hadn't caught up. And that transition to post Rav Noach era was very difficult, very difficult. And it was just, I remember I sat down with uh, Jerry Lieberman, a fellow that, that led the search community that hired me, terrific trees on the board of he's a terrific lay leader. And, and he came to meet with me. We were talking about it. And he said to me at one point, I'll never forget this line. He said to me, he goes, because we talked all the whole business then of how to rebuild it. I didn't know there were rabbis like you. I said, look, I'm a CEO trapped in a rabbi's body. What do you want me to tell you? And it's kind of what they needed. It's kind of what they needed. And my first four years there, we, aside from the budget, we paid $11 million in debt. We fixed up a lot of things. And then I didn't go there to be the spiritual leader. We were able to bring Rick Berkowitz become the Rosh Hashiva there. A lot of things had to be fixed beforehand. And what it goes back to is what I told you before about accountability. I wrote no office, very big responsibility. I mean, that was his mantra. You have to take responsibility for the Jewish world. I had this joke when I first got there where, you know, Ahrayut is the, is the Hebrew term for that. And I would say no one takes responsibility because who's in charge of the database? There was a guy here two years ago and everything was like, and it just kind of floated away. And, um, not a bad way. No one was malicious. No one did anything bad, but you, you have to create that sense. And so that's what we did. The first, I've now been there six years. First four years was really doing that. And then the last two has been how we're going to move forward. So I definitely look weird for people. But when I took a look at Aish and I took a look at the rural state and the legacy and the, the fight every day for the Almighty's relationship with the Jews, to me, it was like, a, it was beyond a no brainer. I was going to ask you, what did you see in Aish that drew you there? There must have been something very compelling. Uh, as far as I know, you still live in America, right? So your family's still there. So that meant yeah. a bit of a commute. Probably, a I know New York commutes are bad, but this is actually, you know, probably a little bit longer than that, even than sitting yeah. on, you know, sitting yeah. on Belt Parkway or Van Wick or whatever. So what drew you there? Obviously the majestic building overlooking the Western wall is, is hard to compete, but you could go visit that also. You don't need to work there yeah. to, to get that view. So what drew you in? I've been around a long time. I know most people in the Jewish world, I've seen a lot of stuff. 
the two pieces that drew me in more than anything, I think number one was what I said before, that sense of responsibility. Whereas folks from age feel a responsibility for every Jew around the world. And, and they feel responsibility that if they see something going wrong, they got to fix it. So many organizations have flowed out of age in terms of the Hasbro Fellowships, JWRP, Momentum, Jews and You, Oz Report, like the massive amounts of organizations. There's a great story uh, about Rav Noah that when the bombs first started falling they wrote years ago, someone wanted to do something about it. And they said, go speak to Noah Weinberg. They show up the old city and speak to Rav Noah. Uh, they said, look, these bombs are falling down. No one's paying attention. And he took money out. He gave the guy money for a video camera and a card. So there was just this sense of responsibility for the Jewish people that really spoke to me. And, th- and they lived it. They didn't just talk about it. They lived it. That was number one. And number two was the relationship with the Almighty, meaning at Aish, all the, and then this came from Noah. They talk about the Almighty all day, all night. When everyone else is trying, couple will talk about God. It's a hard topic. And they were doing the discovery seminar all around the world to basically show the Almighty and all those pieces and, and Hashem and all of, those are like the two things I saw that you in business like what you call them like almost USPs, right? unique selling point, like what makes this organization unique versus other ones. Those were like the two pieces that I saw that I fell in love with. And I said, this is a place that this isn't just each philosophy. This should be Jewish philosophy around the world. And I think that I could play a role in, in perhaps getting it out there. Did you know Rivendell Weinberg at all? Had you ever met him growing up? Not real. I went to a class when I was in Israel, you know, for a year, once at his office. He spoke once for NCSY, you know, met him probably maybe two, three times. I'd always heard the name and stuff like that. I didn't even know that much about Aish, to be honest with you. I knew they had a tape library. I knew they did Discovery. I didn't really know the nuances or, or much about it, which in certain ways was a tremendous benefit coming in. I didn't have a fresh set of eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I, a fresh set of eyes. And no one could say that I had some 20 year grudge against someone. I was just like, this is what I think is right. This is what I think is not right. That being said, was it very difficult to come in as an outsider and kind of be, it's, you know, kind of like a fraternity. You're coming in there and sort of becoming the student president of the fraternity. And you just transferred yeah. it from a different school. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. In terms of the age guys, I really found from them that they wanted to win. They wanted to win. And depending how you define winning, connect the Jews, bring back, they really wanted to win. And I could come in and help them get there. I felt rather embraced. There's certain things I had to learn, but like, also, I think that having spent 22 years in, in NCSY, I always joke that like a guy from NCSY, they always say that primates have 95% of human DNA. NCSY people have 95% of HDNA. We understand the culture better than anyone else really could. And therefore that transition was easier because I knew what they were talking about a lot of the time. The actual stuff I had to do was very difficult because so many things had, had flown away all, all over since Rubinoff's death. There were all kinds of some arguments and stuff. But in terms of being embraced, I certainly had the backing of the board tremendously. And most of the folks there I found very warm and welcoming. Did anyone discourage you from taking the job? Especially, you know, people sometimes have criticisms, oh, sure. and all that yeah. kind of stuff that's out there and the, the sort of the tropes about outreach and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they, there was some real disputes before I got there. And there was um, one letter that was written by Rashid Kamineski, who I, thank God I've developed, I, I think the world of him, and I developed a very beautiful, warm relationship with him overtaking Aish because he was very moral with some of the things there. And I spoke to him before I took it, but there was a very Harif letter that, that he put out. There was a, a tough letter about it. And I called up one of my friends from a good Israel that I had from my time in the OU. And I, I was like, what's the deal with this letter? People were saying, did he write it? Did he not write it? He looks, he goes, oh no, he wrote this. You know, he said, he says, look, I wouldn't go there till they get all this stuff fixed and solved. Like you just don't, don't even touch it. And that was the only moment. And I had a six month kind of courting period till I took the job where I, I thought whether well, I should go or not. And I'll tell you, I thought to myself, as much as I, I've learned about age, so what would Rudolf Weinberg do? And what would Rudolf Weinberg do in this situation? I'm like, he would absolutely take this job. And I realized that for age guys in general, they're, they're firemen. Well, everyone's running away from the fire, they're running into the building. And so for me, it was like, you know what? I'll just, I gotta take this, I gotta do this and I'll, I'll figure it out. That was it. That's incredible. You were able to channel his, his sort of philosophy or his you know, way of thinking about life without having been a primary disciple. Just kind of interesting is by actually my own parents met in uh, Rav Noah's apartment. Wow. So I, I wow. myself am a physical product of That's his beautiful. being there. My father was in the old Shema Israel, and my First. mother was at Neve and they had met through my mom's brother and they actually met at his apartment. So I have a lot of gratitude there as well. So bring us current. Where is H today? It sounds like the first four years were pretty tough, but you got sort of righted the ship and stabilized things. You brought in a new sort of spiritual head in Rabbi Berkowitz, who, for those 
listening out there who don't know, he had been a longtime teacher at the yeshiva for many years, very beloved and popular, had left at a time of a lot of turmoil and a lot of other staff had left and towards the end of Rabbi Noah Weinberg's life, and then was eventually now brought back in to be the, the head, again, on the sort of the rabbinic or spiritual side. So you sort of stabilize things and got that position refilled, which is not easy, and get aware where are you now? What's the big picture? Where are you going? Sure. So, so Robert comes in and he's okay, we have to save every Jew. I mean, he's so amazing. And I'm like, well, how do we do that? So I was approached by two lay leaders, unbelievable people, Amy Holtz from Philadelphia, sure. Mark Levine from Houston, is at the APEC conference about a year and a half ago. They said, look, in Aish, you really should adopt this thing called EOS. It's called Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's a business system. And we were trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. And I said, look, I'll give it a shot. And what was nice about EOS, and I highly recommend it to everyone out there, Amy Holtz runs it for nonprofits. And what I liked about it, it didn't structure the organization, but there was a huge place for vision, right? Well, the way I paraphrase it is vision without implementation is delusion. You can have vision all day long. You can't make it happen. It doesn't exist. So we started with vision and said, what do you want us to do? Or what should we be doing? He's basically said that he felt that Jews had to recognize God. The fact that Jews were not connected to God, didn't believe in God, had zero anything there, that that was a tremendous and was terrible. We had to fix that. And the way to fix that was to get Jews to study Torah. So what we did was we said, we're going to get, that would set a goal of 10, in 10 years, getting 3 million unconnected, unaffiliated Jews to study Torah. Now, it's not so simple because with Berkowitz, God bless him, he's incredible. There's 30% and 70% of Jews in America, right? In North America. 30% of Jews are, 11 to 13% are Orthodox, uh, Reform, Conservative, Pro-Israel. That's 30%. We're not touching those. We're going after 70% that have zero connection to anything Jewish, right? Just to make it harder. It has a 3 million 10 years wasn't hard enough. So we said, great, hand us the vision. And then we raced down and said, okay, how do we do this? Fuck, we're the H.com people. We get a million people a month on H.com. The way that we're going to reach all these Jews is social media. We went out, we hired Jamie Geller, who is very- Also been on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> just terrific, just terrific. And she became our CMO. She is basically kind of spearheading. H.com is wonderful but it skews older, meaning 81% of the folks on H.com are 39 and older. So now we're on TikTok, and so we're on eight different, we've got hundreds of pieces of content constantly going out. The goal is entertainment that's gonna flow into education, called edutainment, right? So we're gonna go find these Jews, and then hopefully get toward to play a significant role in life, you connect the almighty. Now what's interesting is our goal is not to help people keep Shabbos or kosher. We're totally pro that, but our job is to get them connected to Torah, and then hopefully, OU, YU, Lakewood, Chabad, you name it, they'll benefit from what we're doing. That's our goal. We want to get people connected. And then hopefully, a lot of other organizations can take it from there. That's where we're holding right now. So would you view that as a departure from the kind of a previous iterations of the H mission? No, not at all. Rav Noros really felt this way. He felt that you got to get people connected. The executive learning program and people learning Torah, there's so many people out there who learn Torah with H and didn't necessarily make the other steps. He always believed in Torah. One of the most common questions I get asked is, what's the difference between Aish and Chabad? As I travel around the world and I explain to people that for Chabad, it's much more experiential. It's about the tefillin, the muzuzah, the act. For us, it's much more intellectual. Noah was very intellectual. It's about us for discovery and learning the, those programs. Not to say that we're not experiential a little bit and they're not intellectual a little bit, but where you put your focus, I think this is very much in the spirit of who Rav Noah was that we got to get Jews connected to the Almighty in the best way. God gave us the tools. He gave us Jewish wisdom to connect to him. So we just have to make it available to folks out there. Albeit in the old days, discovery was three days. And now I've got 15 seconds on a TikTok. So that's changed a little bit in terms of attention span. We've got to be where the people are. How does all this dovetail with Aish as a yeshiva, Aish as the most majestic piece of real estate in the world? with the most incredible view of the Western Wall of the Kotel, with a thriving institution of higher learning, with other programs for different demographics, as a destination spot for dignitaries and visitors from all over the world. I get the, the weekly uh, emails with all the uh, celebrities and all those things that are posing for pictures up there. Out of those two pieces, or maybe they're just two different aspects of the mission, or do they somehow coalesce? Okay, in terms of the yeshiva, thankfully, it's packed now. I mean, we, we have massive space issues, which are great to have. And it's turning out leaders for the Jewish community who are going to go and carry on this mission. 
In terms of the World Center, we try very much to be a place for everyone to be able to come to, learn, experience, grow. I'll tell you a great story with the Secretary uh, of Treasury, Mnuchin. Okay, we, we hosted Vice President Pence, other people. Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin was there. He came and, you know, they, we were told that he's going to have 10 seconds for a photo by the famous Jubilee sculpture, and he's got to go. He's got all these massive tech companies waiting to meet with him. They just chose it. It's a beautiful, very open, and very close-looking relationship with the embassy. Anyway, he, he, he's a Jewish fellow. He walks up there. He, he goes to take a picture, and then all of a sudden, he spots the view, and that is it. He just... He goes straight out to the porch there and he's staring down, takes out his phone like anyone else would. And uh, I'm there with Rabbi Teal Goldberg, that's our Asia's wrong. Rabbi Teal starts to talk to him and they get into a 20 minute conversation about the base of Mikdash, about the temple. The first base of Mikdash, the second one, the third one, this, that, that. And 20 minutes, we're sitting there learning Torah with the Secretary of Treasury. His days are going nuts. <laughs> you know, it's crazy because the head of Obli, the head of this one, the head of that one, they're all waiting for him all day. And he wants to discuss what the base of Mikdash was. And to me, that's Aish. I don't care who you are, how famous you are, you know, wherever you are. It's a place where you can come and you can study Torah and it can explain to you. And the most beautiful things happen in that building. And it really does not make any sense that Aish Torah has that building. It really, the real estate, I tell me, if you come with a billion dollars in cash, you couldn't buy that building today. But there's a certain sense, and I say this to people all the time, we don't own that building. The Jewish people own that building. And that's the way we conduct it. I call it the United Nations and the Jewish people come in all different languages. We just hosted a bunch of UN ambassadors, Ambassador Kilad Eridan, who's a terrific guy, world there. And that's the way we view it, is the place of Kiddush Hashem, a place where people can see where the Almighty's presence was and that they can study there. And I think that's why H was gifted from Apai, the, uh, that space. Do you see the goal of this massive social media campaign to drive traffic and get people to come to Israel, come to the World Center? And do you see them synergizing in some way? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Look, you have to realize that we operate in three languages, just to get technical for a moment. We operate in English, Spanish, and Hebrew, okay? We're in Latin America and North America, English-speaking countries, England, South Africa, Australia, and we're in Israel. And that's where we, that's where we are. Stark, we've been Russia, other places, but those are the places we're at. And so our focus is, in, you know, Latin America, the foreign style Jews, but really North America. North America and Israel probably have 80 to 85% of the Jews in the world. North American Jews, we absolutely want them to get there, but we understand that they won't necessarily, and we want to drive them local. But we have massive outreach in Israel. And we have, even through COVID, even though the front door of the building is not open, but, you have to, but we have a tremendous amount of Israeli people coming through because we reach out across the whole country. We have a program called Mothers of Meaning with secular Israeli women that work with age. We have another program called Triumph. We just had 25 post-army kind of entrepreneurs, Israeli entrepreneurs that we brought to New York. They created Jewish social action programs. So that, that building, even though it, it's harder to get people over and people think it was much worse North Americans coming over, we do a lot of work with Israelis right now. And that's under Rabbi Goldberg and... And uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Shibri Kaufman. And Kaufman, right? I, I was trying to yeah. remember who the other one was. They actually yeah. came, they took a group of Israelis once on one of their reverse birthright trips to America. So they came to, they wanted to see like a real American college campus since they don't really have those in, in Israel. So they drove sure. to Maryland and I was able to give them a little tour around town. But just the closing, what is kind of the, the future of the World Center? Because it's this, again, this amazing building, multi-level. I remember watching it develop and it was kind of like a giant hole in the ground or in the mountain there for many years and developed and developed. But it seems like it's still not fully actualized and that there's like this amazing potential for what it could be. And I've always heard rumors over the years, it's going to be a multimedia center for anybody coming to the wall. It's going to be this, it's going to be that. What actually is the plans for that space? Well, we, we, I started six years, six years ago, we probably had 25 to 30,000 people in the building. Uh, right before COVID, we were up to over 150,000 people coming through the building. So our numbers had grown tremendously. On Friday night, you would find 12 or 13 different groups having Shabbat dinner there and all kinds of different things and, and classes and, and the building many times was absolutely packed. Our plans actually for the plot of the floor is to be developed into more something called the Western Wall Experience which is going to have a multimedia experience. We have some of those things. We have the Kirk Douglas Theater now. This is some movies. We have a prayer room where people go out to understand the hotel. But there's going to be more of an experience for kind of tourists on a whole to be able to go through. Those plans are in the work right in front of our building. Those have been there. There's still a little bit of a ramp there. That's going to be created a plaza there. We start building that. We're looking into creating a recording studio for video and audio, like these types of things to record all around the world. Uh, Mark Levin, for those of you that know the radio personality, he's the one that really pushed me on that. And a lot of folks have, and we're looking to kind of create that space as well. So 
we're going to create space to just influence more and more people and to inspire them. And that's our goal is to create passionate Jews and to inspire people so they can go out and they can become leaders and, and, and really empower them to, to do great things to Jewish people. What do we need to raise to make that happen on the bottom floors? Someone wants to dedicate that. <laughs> what's, gonna cost? what's the raise on that? Quite a few million dollars, probably in the tens of millions of dollars to, to convert that over. The point to you also is we're looking at some different options on that also in tens of million dollars. I don't want to give all the exact numbers, but our, our budget is a healthy budget and that uh, we're very blessed with uh, Rabbi Ben Goncher also from NCSY originally. He was our executive director. He was one of the, the most talented folks that I've ever worked with in terms of, of philanthropy. Our board members are incredible in terms of giving themselves and, and giving gifts. We have a lot of money to raise. As I mentioned before, out of our operating budget this year, $2 million is still going towards legacy costs. My goal is always in the next few years that the guy that comes in after me just takes it fully clean. So we've kind of taken care of everything we had to take care of. A lot of money to raise in the future, but I believe that God's going to help us do it. Well, we've got naming rights available on the bottom floors of the Western Wall World Center over there. So if anybody wants to get in there, I, I get no Absolutely. cut. I get no <laughs> cut. I just, all I want is access to park over there, down there through the gate. I'll tell you. <laughs> you uh, got it. The executive Sully. Who's yeah, the, Sully. The director sure. of the Mount the Mount So he's a wonderful person. I interviewed him as well. And when we did our interview, this was like nirvana for me. You grew up going to the coattail hundreds of times, et cetera. But you were always like, who got to go through that gate down there and park? Yeah, you gotta be like, controls it. Yeah, you got to be like sure. the chief rabbi. You got to be, I don't know, a super celebrity. So what happens? He says, pull up there. I'm going to get my guy. He calls down his guy. They open it right up for me. I park right in there. I took a bunch of selfies. I actually parked in there. It was amazing. So if I could do that and then just walk in through that little bottom floor entrance you've got there. You, you could be like a billionaire. There's <laughs> real to be able to pull in through that. <laughs> no one else can. So it's, a, it's amazing. So totally. if we get naming rights out of this show down there, so I want access you, to that you gate <laughs> and access to that bottom door and then I'm good to go. Anyway, Rabbi Steve Burke, thank you so, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Really is my pleasure. And I think what you're doing in taking personalities important Jews and exposing them to everyone else to help other people be inspired to, to do great things. It's just terrific. Really terrific. Thank you so much. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing those 3 million Jews come in and hopefully they'll all become uh, Jews you should know listeners, but at least they can connect with the Almighty and help build the Jewish future. We, we certainly need it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.